This message is brought to you by Nuveen. Nuveen has provided investment excellence for 125 years with expertise across income and alternatives. Nuveen continues to expand its capabilities while maintaining its legacy as a leading investment manager. Visit Nuveen.com to learn more. Investing involves risk. Loss of principle is possible. This is Barron's Live. Each weekday, we bring you live conversations from our newsrooms about what's moving the market right now. On this podcast, we take you inside those conversations, the stories, the ideas, and the stocks to watch so you can invest smarter. Now, let's dial in. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Barron's Live, our daily webcast and podcast. I'm Lauren Rublin, Senior Managing Editor of Barron's. Thanks for joining us today for a look at what's moving in the markets. My guests are Barron's Deputy Editor, Ben Levison, and Blair Boyer, a large-cap growth equity portfolio manager at Jenison. Large-cap growth has been the big winner this year on Wall Street. Why is that, and will the gains continue? We'll get Blair's view on that and a whole lot more. Welcome, Blair and Ben, and thank you so much for joining Barron's Live today. Thanks, Lauren. Yeah, on behalf of Jenison Associates and our client and long-standing partner, Harbor Capital Advisors, thanks for having me, Lauren. A pleasure. So I've never started a Barron's Live call with a listener question. We usually save them for the end of the call. But we had a question today from Angela that reminded me how completely immersed we are in market jargon and why it's so important to deconstruct that jargon for our listeners. So Blair, this is for you. Angela asks, what are large cap growth stocks? Let's start with an explainer and then you can tell us about your investment approach and philosophy. Well, great. Well, maybe I'll kill two birds with one stone with my answer, which is our approach to long-term growth stock investing at Jenison and our sub-advisory management of the Harbor Capital Appreciation Fund really rests on the following tenets that, that come down to how we define large-cap growth stocks. These are generally companies that are in excess of $10 billion from a market cap standpoint. And our goal is to own and identify companies that we believe will generate revenue and earnings growth rates sustainably above the corporate average, and that's over our three-year investment time horizon. Now, how do you get the growth? Well, generally, that's through developing products and services um, that come through innovation and investment, and these tend to drive uh, market share gains and create competitive advantage over time. Okay. Um came into the year with cautious expectations for the market. And fortunately, things have worked out better than you expected, certainly for large cap growth and for some other asset classes as well. I know, Blair, that you don't make market forecasts, but has the success of large cap growth stocks made you more optimistic about the long-term view? Well, you're right, Lauren. Our primary focus on macroeconomic developments is gauging how they could impact our portfolio companies and their ability to deliver against our forecasts over our investment time horizon. I think that the fact of the matter is, as we look at the environment that we've lived through the last eight months or so, um, it, you're right, things have eventuated better than we would have expected when the year started, largely because consumer confidence and the consumer in general has been more resilient than I think we thought when the year began. And certainly that re is reflected in an unemployment rate that's largely unchanged since the year began. That's for sure. So... What happens now? How do you look at the market's valuation and how do you size up corporate earnings since those are the big drivers of stocks? Sure. Well, I think in the one as it relates to corporate earnings, much as with the consumer and the better outcome year to date, so corporate profits have also um, had, had a better result year to date than maybe we expected when the year started. 
I think uh, as relates to valuation, my colleagues and I uh, look at valuation and think about where we were probably at the end of 2021 or, or sort of to start 2022, stocks were much more expensive. And the worst hit or worst performing group of stocks since that period of time um, was growth stocks. We can talk about the reasons for that. But so we started this year with modest expectations um, relating to the economy, but also very diminished rates of valuation from a, from a growth stock and an overall market valuation standpoint, I should say diminished relative to where they were a year, year and a half ago. So started with somewhat reduced levels of valuation. And I think that's been um, an important part of why uh, stocks have performed better uh, on a year to date basis. Where do you think things go from here in terms of valuation? You think stocks can earn a higher valuation from here? Well, we wouldn't want to rely on that, and that wouldn't be incorporated in our forecasts. Valuations have obviously um, gone up since the year ended. The, the gains in the market have largely been price appreciation driven as opposed to earnings driven, although I mentioned the fact that corporate profits have turned out better. That hasn't been the big, biggest piece of it. It really has been a valuation revaluation. And largely because I think the market and investors in general look at uh, what the Federal Reserve has done in the last 15 or 16 months, and maybe we're towards the end of that period of interest rate increases, but certainly I think people would view the current situation as perhaps less uncertain in that regard than when the year began. So you have some of the, you own some of the biggest tech stocks this year. Many of them have been big beneficiaries of what I call investors' sudden enthusiasm for artificial intelligence or AI. We'll talk about some of your specific stocks later, but what are some of the big growth themes that excite or intrigue you or that you're keeping an eye on? As the sure. Year? Things that um, are sort of you can tease from our portfolio positions because we don't invest based on themes, but when you look at our positioning and the names that we own, you can you can certainly observe some themes. I would say digital transformation has been an important theme um, for a number of years now and remains the case. I think e-commerce and the related payment uh, enablement technologies that go with that, uh, along with some other retail opportunities, would, would be another one. That makes sense, given what's been moving. I want to bring Ben into the conversation. Ben, this is a big week for retail earnings. We're going to hear from a lot of the big box chains and a number of other retailers. We'll also get the latest reading on retail sales. It's going to be reported tomorrow. And analysts keep a close eye on retail sales, which are considered a barometer of the consumer's health. And as we know, the consumer accounts for about 70% of the economy. So what's the consensus expectation for retail sales? Hi, Lauren. So the uh, retail sales, are they're expected to rise 0.4%. Um, that would be up from 0.2%. Um, but what I found pretty interesting is I was uh, looking at some Goldman Sachs notes this morning, and they're very optimistic about the number. They actually see a 0.7% increase in retail sales, uh, which just be a huge jump. Um, they see that based on um, the record sales from Amazon Prime Day, which uh, happened during the uh, during the month, and they also see it from pretty solid um, consumer spending data in uh, in brick and mortar stores. So there's a chance here for an upside surprise um, among retailers that would uh, I think be pretty good for uh, both the economy and uh, the sector generally. That suggests recession forecasts are going to have to be pushed out even further. It, it really does. Yeah, I mean, 0.7% is nothing to sneeze at. No, I mean, it, it's pretty amazing. And it, and it does suggest that there are, uh, that some of the um, in, inflation kind of pressures might be dropping. The consumers are feeling a little more comfortable with the way things are right now. It also suggests that consumers have a lot of money or at least access to a lot of money. That they do. 
So let's take a look at some of the companies reporting this week. Target reports on Wednesday, Target as we sometimes call it. The company got caught up in a merchandising controversy earlier this year. Do you expect to see a lingering impact there? Um, analysts certainly do. Um, they, the Target, uh, you know, it's, it's had a tough time of it. It's down 17% of the last three months, 12% year to date. Um, and you would expect that a lot of it is in the stock, but it really has had a, a tough time that, uh, with, uh, with that controversy. Um, and the numbers, so I was looking at uh, Wells Fargo note on it. They were, they were saying that uh, they actually expect Target to have to cut its guidance because of this. Um, they don't think the numbers are going to be terrible, but just that everybody wants Target to be able to get to some sort of, like, you know, in Wall Street speak, a reset where they get past all this stuff so they can start, you know, focus on growth and on margin expansion and things like that. Um, but uh, so far that uh, that really hasn't happened. Um, and so I think the big thing with uh, Target is that, you know, you look at the stock here and it's trading down at around, uh, it's, I think, at 130-ish right now. It's low this year has been down around 125 and it's, it just hasn't been going anywhere for the last couple of months. And it really has to hold this level at 135, 125, because if it breaks down, um, it'll break a very strong technical level and it could head much lower. Blair, do you look at technicals at all or strictly fundamentals? We are a fundamental based uh, bottom up manager. We, we think about valuations um, beyond the fundamentals. OK, so not too much technical stuff. That's fair. Let's look at Walmart, Ben. They report second quarter earnings on Thursday. It was a barren stock pick earlier this year. How are things shaping up for Walmart? Well, Walmart's been uh, one of the better big box performers. It's up 14% this year, 5.3% over the past three months. Um, and again, I'm going to Wells Fargo on this one. You know, They see it uh, just doing very well. Um, it's gaining market share uh, in um, just generally. Um, and uh, the biggest problem for the stock heading into uh, earnings is uh, high expectations. Wells Fargo expects its report a profit of $1.75. That would be above uh, the consensus of $1.68. Um, but if the, the buy side, uh, you know, all the uh, managers out there who uh, are watching it uh, probably think that it's going to beat pretty well also. And that could uh, mean that the stock doesn't have a great response to the number, if it is, even if it is a beat, unless it's a really huge beat. Um, but this is a stock that Barron's like, so we actually like Target as well. Um, and it's something that I think for the long term could do pretty well. And what about Home Depot? They report tomorrow, and Home Depot always offers an interesting look at the housing market. This stock has not done much this year. It's up less than 5%. What are analysts expecting? What are you expecting? Well, they're looking at the past three months uh, where the stock has gained 14%. And that has at least uh, the analysts over at Cowan, they're, they're kind of defensive heading into this print because the, stock's, the stock has done pretty well. They do think that um, Home Depot is actually better positioned than its competitor Lowe's. Um, and that's largely because um, they think that uh, homeowners are spending less on their projects. They're not doing big projects. So you have to depend on the pros and Home Depot has the larger pro business. And so that could be the better one of the stocks um, of these kind of stocks to, um, to own in, into earnings. But the, um, the comps are still, they're going to fall a little bit. So sales, uh, year over year, same store sales are going to expected to drop 3.6%. Calency is a little bit larger than that. Um, and so it'll be interesting to see how this is, uh, how we respond to, but I would not be surprised if this is one of those stocks where the number comes out and not much happens. 
All right. Well, as you say, the last quarter was pretty good, even if the year hasn't been. Yep. So let's take a look at some off-price retailers. These are primarily apparel retailers, but also home goods thrown in there. We've got TJX reporting on Wednesday. Ross Stores is reporting on Thursday. What's the outlook? Well, the outlook is uh, pretty good. Um, so UBS expects uh, TJX, which is the uh, parent company of TJ Maxx, um, to actually beat and raise. Um, the big problem, again, is that it's probably in the stock at this point. The stock has gained 8.7% over the last three months. It's up uh, 8% um, uh, this year, around 8% this year. Um, and they actually, they, they do expect uh, you know, it to beat earnings. They expect it to raise its, uh, its outlook by about 4 to 8% for the year. Um, and you know that's going to push earnings estimates higher, but they just don't think that the, the stock is going to move much because they actually think everyone is going, expects this to happen. Ross stores, they actually like a little bit better. Hasn't done as well this year, uh, though it's done about the same over the past three months. And, and the story is quite the same, that uh, they, they think that the, the um, outlook gets raised a little more than it does over at TJX. So probably a five to 10 cent uh, increase in guidance. And that uh, they think that there's actually room for the company to uh, continue to outperform and maybe do a little bit of a catch up. So of these two stocks, that would be their favorite. All right. And moving on from retail, uh, Deer reports on Friday. Deer has been a Barron's roundtable pick for a number of years. The stock also hasn't done very much this year, although it's done quite well over the past three months. What is the outlook for Deer at this point, Ben? I think it's a pretty strong one. One of the things that we're seeing is that uh, food prices are rising both uh, because of what's happening in Ukraine um, with, with Russia and so the trouble uh, getting uh, some of the uh, exports uh, out of there um, and also from some of the weather issues here in the United States. Um, and deer usually benefits from, from these higher food prices. You also have uh, um, longer term food prices are probably going to be um, going to be get some support just from things like uh, the, the, the hotter temperatures and the kind of weather phenomenons that uh, we're seeing um, in the world right now. Um, and so, it, you know, it, from that perspective, it looks pretty good. Um, and it's also um, done so much in shifting its business from uh, just being a builder of these tractors to offering other services as well. Um, and I think that's going to be a big focus of the uh, of the report is just to see um, how that kind of uh, shift away from their um, into these other pro the, the shift to these other profit uh, drivers is uh, playing out. Um, and so I think that the stock looks pretty interesting here. As you said, it has gained a lot uh, in the past three months, but that's really only taken it back to where it was near the start of the year. And so if the, the number comes out uh, comes out pretty well. I think that uh, the stock does have some to, some room to break out here. Mm -hmm. Good. We'll be watching that one certainly. So earnings season is drawing to a close, more or less. Then we're really going to hit the dog days of August. But looking back at the last quarter's results, I want to think about what we've learned. So Blair, I'll start with you. As you look back on second quarter earnings, what are the big takeaways to you? I guess what I'd say to generalize is that profits have come in um, in line with or slightly better than our expectations. Um, so if you think about some of the reasons for that, again, the resiliency of the consumer, we, we sort of view tech as having started um, the declines and sort of, if you want to call it uh, the setback, maybe earliest from an industry standpoint, going back to the middle of last year, these were the large companies in particular where we're beginning to announce um, workforce reductions. We're talking about customers trying to optimize cost. 
And so what we're seeing in a number of those situations now a year on is greater degree of stability in their results. And so those are a couple of things we've observed. Ben, how about you? Yeah, building on uh, what uh, Blair has said, I mean, it's, uh, it wasn't a great quarter. Um, you know, the profits uh, still fell 3.8%, and that was the third consecutive quarter of uh, sliding profits. Uh, but the numbers were far better than expected. Uh, with 90% of the companies reporting, uh, say, um, earnings have uh, beat estimates by about 7.5%. Um, and now when you look at what's going on, that's pointing to much higher um, uh, uh, earnings this year, a uh, real acceleration perhaps. Um, and so you're seeing that uh, SP revenues could be growing. Uh, one of the things that's actually uh, sort of lends credence to that is what's happening with um, GDP forecasts. Um, you have those uh, estimates for how strong the uh, quarter could be, the third quarter could be rising quite a bit. And the Atlanta Fed's number has been rising as well. That's the, um, the GDP now that where they take all the uh, economic releases, they feed it into their, that uh, make up GDP and they sort of do it in real time, what the number would look like based on the releases that we have. And it's looking much stronger than expected. And if that's the case, then you could have stronger revenue growth, which should lead to stronger profit growth. And the other thing that this is coming from Credit Suisse was pointing out is that oil prices have gone higher as well. And they see a correlation between earnings and um, and oil prices, actually, that when oil prices go up, so do earnings. And so they think that's another good sign for earnings over the um, second half of the year. I think the, the biggest thing I would worry about is that expectations for the first and second quarter of this year were, were, were very, very low. Um, they, you know, no one really came into this year with these recession fears and whatnot. And I think a lot of that was um, reflected in analyst uh, estimates. And now as we come out of that, um, it could be that we, you know, we don't have that kind of um, low bar anymore. The bar has been raised. And so it's going to be interesting to see how do stocks respond when uh, this next earnings season comes around. You know, I'm thinking about how the economy responds based on everything we've been talking about. We've got very strong retail sales forecast decent earnings from retailers. That means the consumer is doing well. We're talking about higher revenue and higher earnings across the corporate world. We're talking about higher oil prices. What does this mean for inflation and the Fed's inflation fight? And what does it mean for the strength of the economy? It sounds like a no landing scenario. Blair, do you have any thoughts about that? Well, I, I think your observations are all valid. The, the, the one thing maybe we left out is just that we, we know that interest rates act with a lag, and I think the Fed has acknowledged that rates went from zero to roughly 5% on the Fed funds um, rate over a relatively short space of time. I think they are sitting back now trying to gauge over what period of time rates may have a bigger uh, negative impact on the economy. So there are some, I think there are some things that would be concerning about the growth outlook in general, and that's, uh, that's, one, of those, that's one of those issues. Just that small thing of rising rates. What about you, Ben? No, I, I, I do think that, you know, I always go back to the yield curve. And, um, mm -hmm. it, you know, is this, it's not so much, I think, a predictor, but just a reflection that when it's inverted, um, that you have a, an economy that might be fragile and it doesn't take much to knock it into a recession. And we might just be one um, event away from something that uh, really does trigger that recession. I'm not sure what that would be, but uh, I do see there's some fragility there, even as the economy continues to sort of motor along here. That could be the guessing game for the rest of the year. That what, what's good. going to be the trigger? And sometimes so, it's uh, totally out of the blue, like COVID. I mean, it's people forget that the yield curve had inverted before uh, COVID came along. And um, 
you know, is predicting recession and nobody knew what was going to cause it. And boom, there, there was COVID. And that was probably the most out of the blue kind of uh, thing to happen to cause a recession. Um, but it, uh, you know, often there's just something that happens. But how can the market anticipate that? Um, I th- I'm not sure you can always, um, you know, you just have to take that long-term view and, uh, you know, depending on how you, how you invest, um, you know, you stick with your knitting and try to, you know, for someone like me who does look at, uh, technicals and, uh, changes in valuation, things like that, you're trying to, um, look at what the market is saying and just your risk, um, accordingly. And right now the market doesn't look like it's, um, um, it, it's worried about those those risks for now, but there will come a point where where it has to. You just have to be aware that uh, that's out there and be nimble and be looking for that that change. That's right. So, Blair, I wanted to take a moment now, and speaking of sticking to your knitting, look at some of the biggest stocks that you own. You're a holder of Tesla, NVIDIA, Amazon, and Eli Lilly. All have been nice winners this year. Can you outline the case for each of them for us, explain why you like them and what you see ahead? Sure, I'd be happy to. Maybe if we start, maybe if we start with Tesla, um, I think sure. it's, it's always in the news. Um, you know, we are continuing to uh, expect volume growth in terms of units of production. There have been some issues around pricing and the company has made some adjustments over the last eight to nine months to uh, to take uh, account of a couple of things, one of which is a more competitive environment, but one, they're also treating offensively as opposed to defensively. What I mean by that is they have profitability and cash flow and therefore the latitude to lower prices in a way that a number of their competitors uh, do not. And so against that backdrop and and acknowledging, again, that auto sales are certainly sensitive to economic patterns, we're still expecting the company to have uh, have volume production, generate significant free cash flow, uh, have positive earnings growth, and expect a a good outcome for the year and and into the future. Maybe turning to NVIDIA, um, there's lots of discussion around generative AI, and uh, they are one of the foundational players in this space, given the benefits of their GPUs, their graphical processing units. Uh, over CPUs, which are more traditional computers, in terms of training all types of different models and inferencing ability that comes out of those models. I think one of the things we've been um, maybe most impressed by and certainly struck by in all of the discussions we've had around AI with industry consultants and, uh, and, and companies is just this ability to increase the productivity of engineers and developers, which are probably the most scarce and costly resource in the entire value chain. Improved productivity reduces strain capacity, and that allows developers to tackle bigger uh, challenges, more complex problems, and therefore, hopefully, more complex uh, solutions, utilizing what is now a, a world of data that's available to everybody. So there's a, there's a cost savings benefit, there's a productivity benefit that comes from that, and we think NVIDIA is a, a, an important player in this space now and going forward. If I turn to Amazon, uh, again, a large company, well-known, two important businesses, um, retail, which was initially a big beneficiary of the pandemic, uh, with everybody being home and worrying online, them not having enough capacity. So they engaged in and, and took on a big capital investment program. They are at the tail end of that program now. Sales have begun to normalize. We're no longer um, facing COVID full forward. Um, that's really largely in the rearview mirror. And we would expect them to continue to take share, um, continue to focus on greater um, customer experience in terms of more frequent deliveries and building up that infrastructure as well. 
And then from the standpoint of AWS, you know, that business along with uh, the Azure business at Microsoft and, and Alphabet's um, Google Cloud Platform business saw their growth rates decelerate over the balance of last year. And I mentioned before this notion that customers were trying to optimize uh, money that they had already spent. While the business's growth rates decelerated, they continued to grow. And we, we see stability in that trend now. The company identified that in their last quarter in the report. And uh, we're looking forward to uh, some acceleration in that rate of growth. We, we, we hope to see that uh, in, the, in the coming quarters and, and years um, as that business continues to benefit from this overall trend of digital transformation and an ongoing shift to the cloud. But it isn't all about technology or autonomous vehicles. So lastly, I just wanted to spend a minute on Eli Lilly in the healthcare space. Um, the company is in the process of rolling out a product in the GLP-1 category, which is for the treatment of diabetes. Mm -hmm. So weight loss uh, benefits that go with that. And there is increasing evidence, scientific evidence, that reducing weight uh, has a lot of positive um, comorbidity impacts, heart disease, liver disease, and various others. So the story over the next couple of years is proving out through trials that are underway now, um, more and more of these benefits from weight loss reduction. Uh, and so we think... Lily and uh, its competitor, Nova Nordisk, are probably best positioned to, to benefit from that trend if that's what's the, what eventuates in the year still going forward. Four good examples of large cap growth stocks for sure. So thank you. Um, one more topic and then we'll get to some listener questions. Cleveland Cliffs has bid for U US Steel, ticker X ironically, since that's been in the news. What do we think of that deal, Ben? And what do we think of the price? What's likely to happen here? Well, it's it, 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 it makes sense as a deal. Um, you know, Cleveland Cliffs has been uh, getting larger. It used to just be an iron ore company, but it's been buying uh, steel companies um, to get into that. So it's a little more vertically integrated. And, um, you know, it wants to get even bigger by taking over U.S. Steel. U.S. Steel is, you know, the most famous of, uh, you know, U.S. Steel companies, Um it's an American institution. Like, it, it is. I mean, it's just not U.S. steel companies. It's just it goes back to you know the days of Andrew Carnegie, and this was like the company in the United States. Um, and um, but it's it's tiny now, and uh, the steel industry in the United States is pretty tough. And this would uh, make uh, Cleveland Cliffs the largest um, steel company in North America. Interestingly, it would still only be the tenth largest globally, and I think that explains a lot about why Cleveland Cliffs wants to do this deal. Is that they're, they're just trying to get bigger, trying to get um, more efficient, and be able to compete better. Um, and you know, it's uh, it, the deal's been rejected. Um, the price um, is probably fair, um, but it, um, it. So has it been rejected over price or over something else? I think it's probably overpriced. You know, the U.S. Steel has said that they they're looking into they're exploring options and are going to probably see what's out there. And maybe there's a higher price uh, for it. Uh, some of the analysts are not bullish on the deal happening just because they think U.S. Steel is going to want more than Cleveland Cliffs is going to want to pay. Uh, but the deal really does make sense. Um, and uh, so it'd be, it's going to be an interesting one to watch because I don't think it's going to end just with uh, today's news. An interesting arbitrage opportunity as well. Yep. So, all right, let's go on to some listener questions. Um we had a question from Dirk, and I think this is an interesting one, Blair. Why are this year's market gains concentrated in a small number of highly valued mega cap companies? 
Well, what we would have observed on these companies is, again, these were stocks that in many cases were poor performers um, from the last quarter of 2021 through 2022, um, as these had been the beneficiaries of the first years of COVID. So they were um, companies that had hired aggressively, perhaps hired too aggressively. Um, they were the first ones to put through cost reductions to address some of these issues. But the market structure also, I think, is a factor here, whereby there is a tremendous concentration in indexes um, of some of these very large companies as well, too. So as people have gotten um, perhaps more confident about the market and the market prospects in general, so that has probably benefited disproportionately some of these larger companies um, relative to their smaller peers. Ben, can you give us a um, quick view of small caps and particularly small cap growth? Yeah, I mean, right now, you know, you look at the, the strategists on Wall Street and they are, you know, they, they lean more towards small cap value right now. Um, but I think what's so interesting about small caps is just that the fact that they have not been able to get that that bounce that so many were hoping for and expecting that you might have expected to see. Um, and I'm not sure what gets that to um to happen. Um, it's just, uh, you know, they, they just aren't acting the same way. And um, it might be because of, you know, continued recession fears um, or whatnot, but they just can't seem to compete as well in this environment. Um, and it's something that you would like to see to have a little more faith in the, uh, the rally that we have. So it's a, it was an interesting observation on the part of the listener and yep. good question. Um, we have a question from Khalid. He notes that Lily has grown to be 40% of his portfolio. Do you suggest that he trim the position? And I know you cannot suggest what another person does, but it raises an interesting question, Blair. Do you sell when a stock hits a certain level of your portfolio? Sure. Uh, well, congratulations, I should say. to the, the Yes. <laughs> Love it. In the second instance, um, what we do is when our analysts make recommendations and then stocks um, are purchased by our portfolio managers, we have price targets associated with those. And we run different scenarios. And again, you, you talked about macroeconomic activity. We're always trying to filter these trends through our company managements that we're in frequent contact with to, to understand what different scenarios and how those might eventuate. So yes, we have price targets, we have objectives. We obviously take account with a three-year rolling time horizon of developments that go on. And so we adjust those price targets accordingly. But we use that framework and methodology along with historical levels of valuation in terms of thinking about buying and selling securities. Ben, any thoughts about when to sell? Um, you know, I, 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 I'm just a big fan of rebalancing, um, you know, and you, you know, whether that's with asset classes um, across the, the, at the top of, you know, when you're looking for the top down in the portfolio, but I think also with uh, stocks and um, when any one asset class becomes, uh, you know, a very large portion of the portfolio, it's usually a good time to rebalance somewhat. Um, and, um, but again, I, you know, it's not the kind of thing where I want to give advice. These are just, you know, broad, broad rules I tend to use. Right. That's why I took the question and turned it into a question of what to do when any stock hits a large percentage or larger than you expect. But again, congratulations indeed on that one, Khalid. So we have a question from Rahul. Can you touch on the fear of recession and how one should prepare for it? Ben, do you have thoughts there? Um, yeah, I mean, it's, uh, it, I'm, I'm always fascinated by, uh, the recession, especially because they never seem to come when, uh, people expect them and they do come when you don't expect them. It's something that, 
Barry Bannister over at Stiefel has talked a little bit about, um, you know, he got bullish uh, towards the end of uh, 2022 and it was a great time to do that. Um, and one of the things is he, he said, you know, the, the recession isn't coming yet. Um, and, um, and then he's pulled back recently with a, to a more cautious stance um, just because he does think that, you know, now that everyone sort of doesn't expect the recession, that uh, it's probably more likely to come. And I think it's something you just have to be aware of. And perhaps it's, uh, it means that you want to do, you know, have a little more defense in your portfolio, um, you know, a little bit uh, less beta, perhaps, uh, you know, referring to kind of the most volatile, riskiest stocks out there. Um, but, uh, you know, it's, it, it is hard to, to predict them. And you, you can make, making mistakes can be painful. Um, as I think anyone who came into this year expecting a recession to keep the market moving lower has found out. Indeed. All right, Blair, we'd like to share the questions. I'm going to give the next one to you. This is from David. It's an interesting question. Why growth and not value stocks gaining in a period of economic uncertainty? Do you have any thoughts about that? Yeah, that's. I think it's a great question. Um, if you want to think about it this way, and particularly with large cap companies, um, most of the companies that have gotten to the, to the fate of being large cap have done that because they've been in business for a, a period of time. So they've navigated different economic um, scenarios and different landscapes over their, their tended to what tend to be fairly long history. And they have a playbook for uh, going through a, a tougher economic or a period of tougher economic expectations. And, and so those companies have been executing against that playbook and, and perhaps have more experience than maybe less seasoned companies, smaller companies, companies that haven't been public for as long. So I think there's that aspect to it. And then we also um, would observe that, that just this notion that there are fewer growth opportunities in a recession or a slowdown tends to mean that investor focus um, to the degree that people are looking for growth companies is more, uh, there are more limited opportunities. And that tends to work to uh, the advantage of the companies that are best positioned in that environment. That makes sense, certainly. We have another question about NVIDIA. Howard wants to know, what's a good entry price to buy NVIDIA? I'm not going to make a recommendation on an entry price to NVIDIA. Um, I think, again, for, for all, hopefully some of the reasons that I mentioned, um, the story we think has uh, some period to go in terms of playing out fundamentally. Uh, there's lots of opportunity in terms of thinking about the growth in data center, particularly um, generative AI is another aspect to this. But I do think that uh, you, you need to take a balanced point of view in terms of evaluating uh, any name in terms of from an entry point standpoint. Okay. And a question, this is an interesting one. If weight loss medications will replace attempts to lose weight through exercise and diet, that's an if, do you think the fast food industry will be a good investment? I, I wouldn't know how to answer that. We actually <laughs> talked about this on uh, the Barron's Roundtable TV show um, that ran this, uh, past, this past weekend. Um, Morgan Stanley put out a note uh, looking at the impact of potential impact of the weight loss drugs on the food industry. And one of the things they, they you know, they premised it on was that the drugs really seem to make you not have an appetite for all this kind of junk food that uh, we all typically love. Uh, and so they see the biggest hit being taken by um, fast food companies um, that make unhealthy food um, and also snack companies. Uh, so they mentioned uh, uh, Hostess um, makes Twinkies and, and some others. Um, and they, they like uh, healthier restaurants and uh, food companies better. Um, of course, they did this over a 10 year 
period. Um, you know, they, they see this impacting food sales uh, over this 10 year period. Uh, but I think it's a very long um, outlook. And so I think it uh, will take a, a lot of time to see how many people actually end up on, on these drugs and uh, what the long term impacts are and whatnot. Um, I think it's still really too early to start placing those kinds of bets. It's a curious question, but people are thinking about it. Um, you know, yeah, that's that's the part that's curious to me. Blair, do you have a sense of what percentage of the population eventually could wind up on weight loss drugs like Lilly's products? I think Eli Lilly mentioned a number on their conference call of a billion uh, people, obese people around the world by 2025. I'm not going to speculate on how many of those folks would end up on these products, but it's a large addressable market for sure. Um, mm -hmm. And and, and I think I probably been, I think, covered the, 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 some of the collateral aspects of this pretty well in the answer to his last question. It's fascinating to see what's going to happen there. So last question, Ben, I'll give this to you from Mahesh. On the back of the Tapestry Capri deal, that is Tapestry buying Capri, the company that owns Michael Kors and some other luxury brands, do you expect more consolidation in the luxury goods industry? I think so. Um, I think uh, companies are looking at the success of LVMH um, mm -hmm. and uh, and saying, why can't we do that? Um, you know, you've had it's you know LVMH's founder has uh, been running neck and neck with uh, Elon Musk for the title of world's richest man, and um, there, there's something to be said for um, you know if if you can bring all those brands together under one roof and sell them, um, market them, and make it work the way the LVMH can. Um, it's a great strategy. I think a lot of companies are going to try. I, I think uh, they might find that it's a lot harder to do what LVMH does than it looks, but uh, I would suspect that there will be more attempts at luxury m and You know, if you go into a U.S. department store, you see a lot of brands owned by Tapestry and Capri have a lot of real estate in those stores, and I would imagine with consolidation, it gives you more clout as a vendor. Yep. And, I think you're right. More cloud in a number of other ways. Um, I said we were at the last question, but we have a question about the Chinese economy. I think it's important. So the question from Jude is, how do you see the Chinese economy affecting U.S. growth stocks? And I wanted to ask you, Blair, if you had any thoughts about that. Sure. Uh, well, I, I think particularly large companies operate globally. And so they, they factor in expectations of that global growth and uh, markets that they operate in. Many of the companies in the Harbor Capital Appreciation Fund are, are what we describe as multinational. They operate around the globe. So we're, we're always taking account or trying to take account again of expectations and changing expectations as they relate to growth, growth rates of economies around the world, consumer spending trends around the world. As we know, the Chinese economy reopened uh, earlier this year. Uh, we've seen, uh, in, as in other markets, uh, recoveries in activity levels, some degree of travel, but perhaps less so than others. But I do think there are some unique challenges. You know, as we look at the landscape, we see some unique challenges in terms of the property market in China, the role that that plays um, in terms of investor confidence as, as being perhaps some uh, different types of challenges than we faced in other markets around the globe. Do you think it'll have much of an impact on U.S. growth stocks? Again, I'm not making a forecast. That's just an observation that a lot of these companies do operate um, and, and count on um, non-U.S. revenue and non-U.S. customers as a driver of some portion of the sales growth that they expect over time. So it's something we have to think about and right. certainly are. Right. 
All right. Well, thank you. I think that's about time today. I want to thank you, Blair, for joining us. And thank you, Ben, as always, Thanks, for Lauren. being part of the call. Thanks, Lauren. My pleasure. We appreciate it. Tomorrow on Barron's Live, tune in for an episode of Tech Trader. Barron's, Barron's Associate Editor for Technology, Eric Savitz, will speak with Dan Ives, Technology Analyst at Wedbush Securities. They'll be talking about the outlook for technology stocks, some of which you heard about today. Thanks for listening in today. Thanks for the good questions. Stay well and have a good day. This episode is brought to you by Charles Schwab. Decisions made in Washington can affect your portfolio every day. But what policy changes should investors be watching? Washington Wise is an original podcast for investors from Charles Schwab that unpacks the stories making news in Washington and how they may affect your finances and portfolio. Listen at schwab.com slash Washington Wise.